Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is... Wow, today is Friday, December 8th, 2017. Christagenia New Testaments are now available for purchase at Christagenia.com. I was forced to do that, as Lulu had canceled our accounts in September, wanting to keep my books available for purchase, I had to go print um, several hundred copies of my own and set up a store on my own website in order to sell them. It's a um, rather professional operation. I'm using a third-party credit card company to take collections um, cash, check, and money order are also a payment option. I can't use PayPal because PayPal will just close my account. The third-party company has um, the third-party credit card company will insulate me from the troublemakers, I believe, and and um, they've pretty much been consistently solid in the past about not really being concerned about where their services are used. So I think that we will probably fare pretty well with them. No credit card information is stored at Christagenia. This is 100% secure. You get the little green lock at the top of your screen. And credit card information is only stored by the company, the, the banking company that is taking the collections, of course. That's unnecessary evil. I hate to do it that way, but uh, of course that's how I would deal with PayPal or that's how Lulu would do it anyway. So in um in essence, by printing my own books and selling them myself, I'm cutting out the middleman and the books are actually several dollars cheaper by doing that. That they're less expensive. I have also just ordered from the printer 200 copies of Christrike and hope they are available in about two weeks. And they will be. I'm confident in that. And I will try to do do my best to keep a stock of 200 books. And every time it drops to 100, I will order 200 more. And that's my plan so that I will always have my books on hand for sale so that they will always be available Yahweh willing as long as I live I also hope to have a Romans commentary in um, in six to eight weeks I, I think and hopefully by the end of January actually it's already been put into book form I had plans to put out more of our materials in in the books beyond those, but I will refrain from further further announcements until I complete these projects. For now, only softcover books are going to be made available. That's because hardcover books cost over twice as much to get printed. And we must print in batches of at least 200 books in order for printing to be affordable at all. When we sell enough books that we can afford to invest four or five thousand dollars in in a printing, perhaps then we will have hardcover books printed. But that's going to take some time.
I'm going to um, do my best to save all of our book revenue for the printing of future books. Today's December 8th. It was nine years ago today that I was released from a halfway house in Binghamton, New York to home confinement in Norwich after just about 12 full years in prison. The last three months I spent in home confinement, during which I used most of my time to build several Christagenia websites. Five days after my release, on December 13th, I did my first podcast on TalkShoe with a person that I will not name here. That was over 1,100 podcasts ago and maybe closer to 1,200. The time's gone rather quickly it all seems like a blur. Now, according to our DNS provider, Cloudflare, Christagenia had over 120,000 unique visitors to the website during the month of November and around 200,000 total visits. Website traffic has been up over 20% each of the last two years. It's been a long, slow climb to get to this point, and of course, there's no guarantee that we will continue doing so well. As we can prove through documentation, our website traffic is lied about by the companies that profit from publishing such figures, and Google and other search engines actively suppress many of our pages in their search results. But for what we have been able to do, we praise Yahweh for that, and we pray that we continue to grow in spite of all of our opposition. Ever since I was released from prison, my only endeavor has been to place our Christian identity truth on as solid a footing as I am capable of doing, and to get our message to as many people as possible. And this is what we should all be doing. This is our obligation to Christ to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and the message of Elijah. It's time for the message of Elijah to as many of our racial kindred as possible, whether they accept it or not. Christian identity truly is the Elijah ministry. But even Elijah never sought to be a ruler. So we should preach the true gospel of the kingdom while none of us should truly desire to be a king. And before I get into that, because I'm going to get into a little digression concerning that, I've been asked a lot lately in, in, in um, social media and, and by a few friends about this recent development with Jerusalem and the Israeli state and Donald Trump. I don't like to feed off the news. People that sit around and pontificate about the news are usually full of shit about 90% of the time because nothing ever turns out like it could possibly be imagined. The only thing going on in Palestine today the only thing that is going to go on in Palestine today, the only thing that the word of Yahweh our God has to say about Palestine today 
is summed up in the first four verses of the prophet Malachi. The burden of the word of Yahweh to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith Yahweh. Yet ye say, Wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Just recently we did a presentation on Malachi chapter 1, on the entire book of Malachi in, I think, five parts. And we discussed this first section of the prophecy of Malachi at great length when we termed Malachi the prophet of Christian Zionism. We white Europeans are, to a great extent, descended from the Israelites of Scripture. We are the Jacob of history. And Yahweh says, I have loved you. Yet you say, Wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? These true Israelites of today we see in this dialogue between Yahweh and the children of Israel are more concerned with the Edomites with these Edomites than they are with themselves. And the Edomites today are represented primarily by the Jews. Some by the Arabs. There are probably a lot of Edomites and of course part Edomites because they are all bastards among the Arabs. But the children of Edom can be historically traced through history to today's Jews to a great extent. And this is Christian Zionism. This is Christian Zionism in prophecy where Yahweh loves Jacob and Jacob has more concern for the bastard Edomites, for the Jews, than he does for his own race, his own people. Christian Zionism is being prophesied in Malachi chapter 1. And Yahweh responds, Thus saith the Lord, Yet I have loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, We are impoverished, Now let me say this. How does that not sound like a damn Jew? We are impoverished. But we will return and build the desolate places. How does that not sound like Theodore Herzl and his freaking beggar Jews? His vagabond Jews who are always crying poverty. Who are always crying oppression. Even when they have their pockets stuffed full of gold and their mattresses stuffed full of cash. We are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. That happened in the 20th century, and the Jews have been begging and begging ever since. And it says in Malachi, Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, They shall build. That's what's going on today. That's what's been going on for over a hundred years in Palestine. They shall build the desolate places. 
those places left desolate in Palestine. But I will throw down. I will throw down. That's the Holocaust that we owe the bastards. And they shall call them the border of wickedness. The people against whom Yahweh has indignation forever. No changing. There is no changing him. These Jew bastards in Palestine are the Edomites of Scripture and they are all going to be destroyed. But they are not the camp of the saints. What Jew has ever been a saint? No Jew could possibly be a saint. The children of Israel, they are the camp of the saints. Christendom, those people who accepted Christianity when they first heard the gospel 2,000 years ago. That would be about 1,800 years before it was ever brought to a nigger. And the niggers have never done a damn thing with it, or to Chinamen, or any other race. All they do is use Christianity as an idol to get more gifts and tokens and, and gold from the white man. That's all they use Christianity for. So that they could use the white man to their own advantage. Only white men have ever truly been Christians. Only white men can be Christians. We, the white nations of Christendom, we are the camp of the saints, and all these other races are the flood from the mouth of the serpent, the international Jew. In the Revelation, in chapter 12, Herod, the Edomite king, was portrayed as that great red dragon, because every Jew is basically a piece of that great red dragon, just like every white Christian is made in the image of God. The only thing that's happening in the Middle East are the first few verses of Malachi. These Edomites were prophesied to build the desolate places. The places that Christ left desolate. The house that Christ left to them desolate in the Gospel. And Yahweh will destroy them all once again when they finally get the Holocaust we owe them. Offhand, I think of no other prophecy that fits the situation currently in the Middle East in the correct time frame. Of course, Jeremiah has the prophecy concerning Jerusalem in Jeremiah chapter I believe it's in chapter 19. It might be Jeremiah 24, but I think it's Jeremiah chapter 19 where he prophecies and breaks a bottle and says that Jerusalem will never be rebuilt. At least not in the manner that it was in the ancient world. So we'll see what happens in the Middle East, but we can only anticipate the destruction of the devil. This is... Special Notices to All Who Deny Two Seed Line, Part 23.
And as I was saying, Christian identity truly is the Elijah ministry. But even Elijah never sought to be a ruler. So we should preach the true gospel of the kingdom. But none of us should truly desire to be a king. Last week I was reading a social media page on Google+, which belongs to someone that I count as a friend, and I became quite disappointed when I saw him complain in one of his posts that Christian identity does not have a quote-unquote real leader. That is news to me, as I never imagined that we did not have a real leader. Thirty-five centuries ago, our people rejected Yahweh as their king, and they demanded an earthly king, as it is recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Our people demanded an earthly king, and Yahweh gave them one. Then he warned them just how much they would suffer under such a king. But they didn't care. They demanded one in spite of the warning. So 400 years later, later <coughs> I'm sorry, 400 years later, after earthly kings drove both the houses of Israel and Judah off into sin, in Hosea, Yahweh had said, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. I will be thy king. Where is any other that he may save thee in all thy cities? And thy judges, of whom thou said, Give me a king and princes. I gave thee a king in my anger, and took him away in my wrath. It was a sin for our people to ask for an earthly king. And we have no reconciliation to God until we repent of that sin. Now Christ is king, and he is our only legitimate king. Even Paul of Tarsus set such an example in his second epistle to the Corinthians, where after he chastised them for certain things which they had done wrong, he said, Not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy, for by faith you stand. Paul only taught them the scriptures, and he expected them to be able to correct themselves. As he tells them in the first epistle to the Corinthians, asking them, don't you have someone who's humble, who can be set to judge? So Paul did not want to rule over the Christian assemblies. That is because Christ is king, as Yahshua Christ told us in the Gospel of Matthew. But be ye not called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and you are all brethren. And call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father who is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. The Christian assemblies of Rome and Corinth 
were small and local home churches formed around extended families and neighborhoods which chose their own leaders from their own community elders from the natural patriarchy and Paul of Tarsus would not rule over any of them neither should any of us seek to rule over our own brethren identity Christians should have only Christ as their king and not seek positions of power or authority for themselves rather we should only seek to serve one another as Christ had said aspiring to the idea that he that is greatest among you shall be your servant as he was our servant all those who set themselves up to emulate popes or bishops or archbishops as the denominational churches do are wrong it is one thing to support a cause or a teacher but it is quite another to imitate the worldly denominational churches whose rulers have typically sought to regulate the lives of their members in my opinion all those who strive to be the leader of what is called Christian identity are wrong not only that they are stupid and therefore they don't deserve to be a leader of anything we do not need a leader we do not need to emulate the world we do not need a personality cult we do not need a pope of our own we have no political solution so why should we emulate political entities we do not need to endlessly repeat the errors of the past we already have Christ we need to learn from the parable of the trees of the forest in Judges chapter 9 that those who delight to rule over others usually have no ability to do anything for themselves that is why in that same parable the bramble bush the useless good-for-nothing bramble bush had come to rule over all of the noble trees of the forest we can have various pastors and teachers and ministers of one gift or another their work will be their accreditation but we already have a king and we do not need any other we instead need a community of brethren who all recognize that Christ is king and for that reason are willing to cooperate with one another without seeking to rule over one another without seeking to be the top dog the big cheese or whatever the hell you want to call it without seeking their own glory and glorification when we when we get to that point only then will we have repented from the error of our fathers who demanded an earthly ruler an earthly leader I pray my friend is listening with this we shall begin our presentation of Clifton Emmeheiser's special notice to all who deny to seed line 
Part 23. Clifton prepared this paper for publication on or about January 26, 2003. It is his next to last in the series. Here he opens up with a theme which he has carried throughout the entire series, reflecting upon the enmity of Genesis 3.15, which our race has always endured. And he says again, the subject of two seed line must be brought to the forefront of our attention. Because the agenda of the enemy is to destroy the white Israel race, we find ourselves in a war. And this subject cannot be passed over lightly. We observe this unnatural phenomenon going on wherever we turn. We cannot go shopping or eat out at a restaurant without seeing this shameless manifestation of the race mixing that is ever on the rise. The reason for bringing this dilemma before you anew is because the positions of those who oppose to seed line teaching are wittingly or unwittingly assisting the enemy in their cause. Once again I will point to Stephen E. Jones, Ted R. Wyland, and their whole wrecking crew as the principal offenders. Now throughout this entire series, Clifton has been singling out certain so-called, so-called Christian identity pastors who not only deny that, do not, who not only deny what we call 2C line, but who are essentially little more than denominational preachers who have come to understand something of the identity of the children of Israel in modern times. So they take the new patch of identity understanding and they affix it to the old worn-out cloth of denominational churchianity, thinking that alone to be sufficient. But it is our opinion that real Christian identity beliefs would require one to identify all of the parties of the Old Testament historically, since they all have descendants here among us today, and to identify today's people in relation to who their ancestors were in biblical times. Anything short of that is not proper Christian identity. Christ informed us that there are wheat, And there are tares, there are sheep, and there are goats, there are good fish, and there are bad fish. And the goats aren't only the Jews. Christ said that he would gather all nations and separate all those nations into two groups, the sheep and the goats. So everybody has to fall into one category or the other. Christ said that the kingdom of heaven was like a net cast into the sea. Nets are not discriminatory. 
Nets bring up from the sea everything that falls between their folds. And there are two types of fish in that net. Good fish and bad fish. And the good fish are preserved. But the bad fish, they're not thrown back into the sea. They are thrown into the fire. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you like to know who the bad fish were? Wouldn't you like to know precisely who the goats were? To identify only the wheat, the sheep, and the good fish is only half of the necessary equation if we are to apply his parables in our modern lives. If we are going to find his parables relevant to our world. And if his parables are not relevant to our world, then he cannot be God. Therefore, believing that Jesus Christ is God, his parables must be relevant to our world. Without a doubt. Clifton continues, Their chief crime, and I do mean crime, is to place Cain on an equal footing with Abel. That certainly is a crime. They continue to quote Genesis 4.1 as support for their untenable view, never checking any authority on the Hebrew to verify their suppositions. As a result of their misjudgments, they incorrectly direct the blame for all of today's miscegenation on the flesh rather than on the agenda of the genetic satanic seed of Genesis 3.15. And I would like to interject there that Clifton certainly is right because the flood which is sent after the woman to destroy her comes from the mouth of the serpent. These other races are that flood from the mouth of the serpent. Clifton says, Thus, they are misdirecting blame for our greatest racial problem. And reading the Camp of the Saints scenario as it's prophesied in Revelation chapter 20, it's the devil, that same serpent, that international Jew, it's the devil who gathers all of the world's other nations, which ostensibly must all be goats. They all have to fall into the goat category to do war against the camp of the saints. And of course, the camp of the saints, all of those people must fall into the sheep category. Otherwise, how could they be saints? Thus they are misdirecting blame for our greatest racial problem and helping to create a racial catastrophe of gigantic proportions. And here it is upon us. Therefore we two seed liners dare not be silent. No, we shouldn't be. Because we only have one shot at this. We two seed liners dare not be silent. To show there is a problem with Genesis chapter 4 verse 1, I will again quote the interpreter's one volume commentary on the Bible by Charles Lehman on page 6. 
and it says under circumstances which are obscure basically meaning that the text was screwed up so long ago that nobody can figure out what happened verse 1b the second part of Genesis 3.15 can scarcely be translated still less understood Clifton says that hardly seems like clear-cut evidence that Adam was Cain's father, does it? And Clifton's point is true. If Genesis 4.1 is the only verse of scripture by which it can be shown that Adam was the father of Cain, and that verse is demonstrably corrupt, then it proves nothing. It's not a valid witness. Clifton says, I have yet to hear or read an anti-seedliner comment on the Hebrew of Genesis 4.1. By the way, I purchased this book, his copy of Charles Lehman's commentary, from E. Raymond Capt, as if that gives it greater authority. I would also remind you, the 12-volume Interpreter's Bible Commentary has a similar comment on Genesis 4.1, which I have quoted before, and he's actually quoted it quite often earlier in the series, and we won't quote it again. But throughout the series, we have heard Clifton on Genesis 4.1 and the Aramaic Targums, which tell a very different story than our typical Bible translations. First, If all one has is one witness to prove any point, one must acknowledge that his position is tenuous at best. Tenuous, meaning shabby, flimsy. When that one witness has numerous opposing witnesses, whether they be circumstantial or not, the position becomes even flimsier. No matter how explicit or even authoritative the one witness may seem. But to show how difficult, and I think we've done this before here, to show how difficult it is to understand the text of Genesis 4.1, how difficult that was even for the earliest interpreters of Scripture, we will repeat what we have seen in the hexapla of origin origin, the third century Christian writer. The hexapla was a parallel presentation in six columns of six different Old Testament versions. One Hebrew, one transliterated Hebrew. I guess because Greeks couldn't always read all the Hebrew letters or something. It was easier for them to pronounce the words out in the Greek letters. And four columns of the Greek, including a column for the Septuagint. The other columns were translations by Symaticus and and Theodotion, who, who was basically an interpreter or reviser of the Septuagint. While complete versions of Origen's Hexapla are lost, many fragments are extant and volumes have been published since the 19th century. 
We have a copy of the edition published by Frederick Field in 1875 available in a pair of PDF files which are posted at Clifton's website at the very bottom of his page for his essay, The Problem with Genesis 4.1. Field's edition reproduced both the Hebrew and a reading from the Latin Vulgate for each passage, along with each of the four Greek versions found in the Hexapla. Translating both the, the Latin and the various Greek interpretations of the Hebrew of Genesis 4.1b, for Genesis chapter 4, verse 1b, meaning the second half of the verse. Translating that into English, the Latin and the various Greek interpretations, the following readings are found, and all of these translations are my own, and I include possible variations in brackets. The Latin says, I got a man to help Yahweh. It actually has the word Yahweh. Oh, I'm sorry. It has Jove. Well, Jove in Roman is actually Yahweh. I-O-U-E. As Josephus says, the Hebrew holy name of God is spelled with four vowels, meaning Greek vowels, because when he said that, he was writing in Greek. Jove is Yahweh. I got a man to help Yahweh. And it's spelled out, I-O-U-E. First Greek reading. I have acquired a man through or by God. And there's a definite article, so it's a capital G God, referring to the particular God of the Bible. The second Greek reading. After the Hebrew and Syriac. I have acquired a man with or by a god. There's no definite article. It's a small g god. The third Greek reading. I have acquired a man with a lord. The word kurios rather than theos. With no definite article. So it's no definite lord. The fourth Greek reading. I have acquired a man, a lord. Again, no definite article, the two nouns each being singular, and in the accusative case, without prepositions, are both the object of the verb, and therefore they refer to the same object. In English we would say, a man who is a lord. While these readings do not directly support Clifton's entire thesis concerning Genesis 4.1, as there is more to the story, they do support the assertion that the text of Genesis 4.1b was rather problematic even to the earliest translators of the Hebrew into Greek. For that reason, Clifton turned to the Aramaic Targums for an indication of how certain Hebrew scribes of that same era understood the passage. There is a body of other apocryphal literature, as well as many passages in the New Testament, 
which also support his assertions. Now Clifton continues under the subtitle, Proof Positive, Adam Was Not Cain's Father. And he says, all one need do to verify this significant biblical fact is to turn to Jude 14, which states, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of thee, saying, Behold, Yahshua cometh with ten thousands of his saints. Then, if you will turn to both Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 through 18, and Luke chapter 3, verses 37 and 38, and count from Adam to Enoch, you can see clearly there are only six listed. Jude didn't make a mistake when he pointed to Enoch as being the seventh from Adam, for he was including the prophet Abel in his calculations. Hebrew makes, Clifton makes a reference there to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. And he says, it should be noted that Jude didn't say the seventh generation from Adam. For Enoch was the sixth in that category. Enoch was only the sixth generation from Adam. Many commentaries agree on this point, and Clifton asks, but how can this be? If Abel is included, a proper list would then be thus, Abel, Seth, Enos, Canaan, Mahalael, Jared, and Enoch. It should be noted that both the Genesis and Luke accounts have a missing man, which can only be filled in with Abel. Should one try to force Cain into Adam's genealogy, Enoch would then be the eighth from Adam, at this juncture, one has only one choice of two, Cain or Abel. To exclude both Abel and Cain is also damning, for it makes Enoch the sixth from Adam. Some will argue that one should start counting with Adam as number one, but the Greek does not support that idea. The Greek, ebdomos apo Adam. Apo means separation from, apart from Adam. Ebdomos means seventh. Seventh Apo Adam is seventh apart from Adam, or seventh in who is separated from Adam. It's the seventh from Adam. It cannot possibly include Adam with the preposition Apo. It's the seventh without Adam. Apo can also mean without. To be without in the sense of being separated from or apart from another. So Ebdomos Apo Adam is 
pretty damned explicit. It has to mean the seventh from Adam, excluding Adam himself. Clifton goes on to say, wittingly or unwittingly, the Antichrist, anti-seedliners, have chosen Cain to fill that spot, for they spuriously claim that Cain was Adam's authentic son. A second witness to the fact that Abel should be listed as the missing man is Genesis 4.25, which says, and Adam knew his wife yet again. And Clifton has a parenthetical remark, citing Jesenius, that it cannot mean again and again. And she bare a son, and called his name Seth. For Elohim said, She, for Elohim said she, has appointed me another seed instead, or in the place, of Abel, whom Cain slew. And Clifton says, if, as some claim, Cain was kicked out of the family for murdering Abel, Seth would have been a replacement for Cain, not for Abel. Evidently, the anti-seedliners have a problem counting to seven. And Clifton is absolutely right there. This is a big problem for those who would deny two seed lines. By the biblical laws of inheritance, if Cain were Adam's legitimate son, it would have indeed been Cain who needed a replacement, but never Abel. Enoch could certainly not have been the seventh person from Adam, as each generation of patriarchs went on to have sons and daughters after siring their firstborn. So Clifton is correct that Enoch being seventh from Adam, as the Hebrew reads, I'm sorry, as the Greek in Paul's epistle reads, without doubt, or in Jude's epistle, Enoch being seventh from Adam, as the Greek reads, without doubt, either Cain or Abel would have to be inserted into the first from Adam position in order for Jude's words to be accurate. And we cannot honestly claim that the apostle was inaccurate, especially if all we need to do to perceive his accuracy is to insert either Cain or Abel into the list. With Seth being a replacement for Abel, we must insert Abel. And therefore Cain cannot have been Adam's legitimate son, because it was not Cain, for whom Seth was a replacement. It's real simple. The very name Seth means compensation. As he was a replacement for Abel, he was compensation for Abel. Cain, not being Adam's legitimate son, did not need any replacement. Shortly, Clifton will inform us as to why Jude was compelled to mention Enoch by the number of those from Adam. Clifton continues, Matthew 23.35 indicates that Abel was among the righteous. Abel was righteous for the same reason as Noah. He was perfect in his genealogy, or generations. At this point, 
it might be well to quote again the Targum of Jonathan on Genesis 4.1. And Adam knew Eve his wife, who was pregnant by the angel Samael, and she conceived and bare Cain, and he was like the heavenly beings, and not like the earthly beings. And she said, I have acquired a man, the angel of the Lord. And as we have asserted in the past, we shall repeat here, that the Targums show that several early interpreters of Scripture esteemed there to be inconsistencies in the text of Genesis 4.1, and they sought to compensate or to fill in the proverbial blanks, reflecting what they believed the account should read. Clifton now continues under a subtitle which, over nine years later, in March of 2012, he had made another essay, and the subtitle is, The Battle for the Priesthood. Many surface readers of the Bible read Genesis 4.1 and never comprehend the struggle between Cain and Abel for the birthright and priesthood. The firstborn son is always considered in line for ruler and priest of the family. Genesis 4.7 definitely states that Abel would be subservient to Cain. And verses 1 and 2 clearly indicate that Cain was the firstborn of Eve. Now Yahweh told Cain that if he didn't do well, sin lieth at his entry into life by the way of his birth. Let's repeat again the Strong's definition for door. Pethach. An opening, literally, a door, gate, or entranceway. A door, an entering in, an entrance, a gate, an opening, or a place. Clifton says, I have yet to read or hear any of the anti-seedliners. Explanation for the Hebrew word door. I suppose they might try to idiotically claim that it was the door of Cain's heart. Ha! The exclamation belongs to Clifton. In fact, in his Seed of Satan, literal or figurative, Jack Moore dimwittedly made that very statement on page 14. Of course, it would be a conjecture. Thankfully, I think, this time Clifton spared us from reading what Jack Moore actually had to say, and continues under another subtitle, Contest for the Birthright and Priesthood. And he says, in verses 3 and 4, we are told that both Cain and Abel brought forth offerings unto Elohim, or God, and that there was respect for Abel's, but no respect for Cain's. Now only a priest can offer a sacrifice, so both Cain and Abel were priests. Therefore Abel was the firstborn of Adam, and Cain was the firstborn of Satan. Of course we don't know that. Cain was the firstborn of Satan. It was an entire tree of the knowledge of good and evil at the time. He was really the firstborn of Satan with Eve. Abel's sacrifice was accepted of Yahweh, not because he was firstborn of Eve, 
but because he was the firstborn of Eve to Adam. When we get that straightened out in our minds, we can comprehend that Enoch was the seventh priest from Adam. Abel was priest number one from Adam. Seth was priest number two as a replacement for Abel. Enos was priest number three from Adam. Cain was priest number four from Adam. Mahaliel was priest number five from Adam. Jared was priest number six from Adam. And Enoch was priest number seven from Adam. As for Cain, he was the firstborn priest of Satan birthed by Eve. Now there were many more sons born to all these patriarchs between Adam and Enoch. But only the firstborn sons were born into the priesthood. Except Seth, who was a substitute in place of Abel. Now I would add that unless Abel fulfilled some accountable role during his lifetime, he would not be counted. And Jude may have informed us that Enoch was sixth from Adam. Then concerning the line of firstborn inheritance, he would have been correct, as Abel was an heir, but Seth was necessary to replace him, since Abel did not live to become the patriarch after his father. But all of the others down to Enoch did, and that made Enoch sixth from Adam. However, if Abel fulfilled some function during his lifetime, Jude had a definite purpose for including him. And from all that we actually have in Scripture, this must have been that function, the function of family priest, because Abel was found making a sacrifice. And the entire struggle between Abel and Cain is centered around that sacrifice. So Clifton continues. Let's rephrase all this in a different manner. First, to count Enoch seventh from Adam is an ambiguous statement since each male in the list begat sons and daughters, which means Enoch is but the sixth generation and not even close to being the seventh male from Adam. Again, Enoch is the sixth generation of his own line, and other unmentioned lines may have had even more than that. Jude can only mean that Enoch is the seventh high priest from Adam, since only a firstborn son is a family priest. If Cain were Adam's son, Cain's line would have had the family priesthood by law, regardless of Cain's actions. Had Adam been Cain's genetic father, the priesthood would have followed from Adam to Cain, to Enoch, the other Enoch, to Irad, to Mehuyael, Mehujael, Mehuyael, to Methusael, to Lamech, to Jabal. Instead, this is the lineal high priesthood of Satan. Had Cain been removed from the priesthood for murdering Abel, then Enoch, Cain's firstborn son, then Enoch of Cain's line should have been 
the priest appointed instead of Seth, and after that all of his lineal firstborn descendants. Had Abel been the secondborn of Adam, Abel would never have offered a sacrifice, for Cain would have offered it for him. When we fully grasp the line of the priesthood, then we can understand why Adam's and Cain's lines are given separately, and no mention of Cain is alluded to in the line of Adam, not anywhere in Scripture. From Genesis 4 2 forward. We must also grasp the function of the priesthood as it is described in Scripture. As in Numbers chapter 3, where the word of Yahweh says, in verse 12, And I, behold, I have taken the Levites from among the children of Israel, instead of all the firstborn that opened the matrix among the children of Israel. Therefore the Levites shall be mine. That firstborn males were dedicated to the service of God is evident in Exodus chapter 13, even before the giving of the law at Sinai, where we read Yahweh command, that thou shalt set apart unto Yahweh all that openeth the matrix, every firstling that cometh of the beast which thou hast, the males shall be Yahweh's. So the firstborn sons are all dedicated to Yahweh. They are the family priests. That was the Adamic tradition. We would assert that these two instances represent Adamic tradition from the beginning, as Peter had referred to Noah as the eighth preacher of righteousness, saying that Peter did not count Abel, Lenech, Enoch, or Lamech, as none of those men actually outlived their fathers, by which they may have inherited that title. Now Clifton continues under another subtitle, which says, Eve was in the transgression, 1 Timothy 2.14. And he quotes the passage from the King James Version. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. We more accurately translate this passage in the Christogenia New Testament. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman had been thoroughly beguiled when the transgression occurred. So Clifton continues and he says, Some commentaries make the argument that the deception was a matter of relativity, that both Adam and Eve were deceived and were in the transgression, but that Eve's deception was more intensified than Adam's. However, the Greek does not support that opinion, and one must read into the text something that isn't there. The Greek simply states that Eve was deceived and in the transgression, period. And I would say that the Greek also plainly states that Adam was not deceived at all, not merely to a lesser extent, but that his sin must have been made consciously because he was not deceived. Continuing with Clifton, the word transgression in the Greek requires an act rather than only a 
mental seduction, as the anti-seedliners claim. The word for transgression in 1 Timothy 2.14 is the Greek word parabasis, to transgress, wrongdoing, law-breaking. In other words, there must be something to transgress before there can be a transgression. If Eve's transgression was a thought crime, as the anti-seedliners allege, then we are all in trouble. The progression of sin is explained in James chapter 1, in verses 14 and 15. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then, when the lust has conceived when something was actually done. It brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, meaning when it is accomplished, when the deed actually happens. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. The anti-seedliners declare that this passage is an error, and that thought enticement alone brings forth sin. I'll guarantee that every committed act of transgression called sin, including Eve's, follows the above route, referring to James chapter 1. Enticement is only mental, but transgression is an act fulfilled. Scripture declares that Eve's sin was an act of transgression, no matter what the anti-seedliners fallaciously contend. In short, There is no way under heaven to apply the Greek word parabasis to anything other than an act, not a mental violation, which is ridiculous. Whatever else the Greek word parabasis can be applied to, it cannot be utilized for anything mental, only an act of breaking a law. And the idea that there are thought crimes in scripture is quite ludicrous. There are wicked thoughts, but they are never punishable crimes until they become wicked deeds. If the thoughts themselves were sins, then one cannot even contemplate the law without sinning. As one thinks the thoughts that the law suggests, just by reading a law, For instance, one must think about lust when one reads the law, Thou shalt not covet. And one must think about the act of murder when one reads the law that says, Thou shalt not kill, and on and on ad infinitum. Thankfully, thoughts by themselves are not punished, and Christians are encouraged to reign in their thoughts. Only actions are punished in a law. Clifton continues, and he says, Yet in spite of all this, Ted R. Wineland, in his book, Eve, Did She or Didn't She?, says the following on page 29. The Bible is always its own best commentary, and it clearly attests to the fact that Eve was mentally deceived, not sexually seduced. And Wieland, of course, is a rodeo clown. No, Clifton says... No, Mr. Wyland, I don't think the word transgress makes it all that mentally clear. 
Then on page 94, he repeats his spurious conclusion again. And he says, The seed liners teach that the beguiling of Eve was physical, whereas 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, declares that the beguiling of Eve was mental. Clifton responds and he says, Again, Mr. Wyland, what are you going to do with the Greek word parabasis, meaning transgression, in 1 Timothy 2.14? Mr. Ted Wyland is manipulating the English context of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, but the Greek doesn't support his conclusion. A better rendering of verse 3 directly from the Greek would be, But I fear lest in any way, as the serpent had thoroughly beguiled Eve in his villainy, that in your manner, that in that manner, I'm sorry, your thoughts would be corrupted from that sincerity which is with the anointed. Wyland, Clifton says, by insisting on a mental-only seduction of Eve, effectively removes the idea of a chaste virgin virgin from verse 2. Once the significance of a chaste virgin is removed, there is no longer any redemption for Israel. I noticed also in his scripture index on page 132, he entirely skipped over 1 Timothy 2.14. And Clifton makes the parenthetical remark, I wonder why. I have to make a digression. Here in January of 2003, where he says a better rendering, Clifton was quoting from a preliminary version of what would later become the Christogenian New Testament. According to my own records, that first translation that Clifton quoted was made in December of 2000, following the majority text, but it was revised a little over a year after this paper was written in April of 2004 to follow the older manuscripts as they are recorded in the Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Grece. So there are two slight differences in the current reading of the Christogenian New Testament. Our current version has the verse to say, But I fear, lest in any way, as the serpent had thoroughly beguiled Eve in his villainy, your thoughts would be corrupted from that sincerity and that purity which is with the anointed. So you'll see that. My general manner of translation hasn't changed since 2000. The words in that manner are wanting and the words and that purity appear in the older manuscripts. That accounts for the slight differences. Clifton continues, turning his attention to yet another circus clown. In Stephen E. Jones's book, The Babylonian Connection, on page 42, he says this, We conclude then that when Eve explained to God that the serpent had beguiled her, she meant that he had mentally deceived her. What a clown. 
He corrupted the truth of God's word by preaching another Jesus, or God, another spirit, and another gospel, just as Satan's ministers have done all through the ages. And when he believed Satan's doctrine, she too was corrupted. Nashah, as used in Genesis 3.13, had nothing to do with physical seduction. Clinton responds, While Jones does not avoid 1 Timothy 2.14 as Wyland did, on page 48 he takes it entirely out of context and engages in some nonsensical Jewish-style double-talk. But the main thing which Jones avoids in reference to 1 Timothy 2.14 is explaining the Greek term parabasis, meaning transgression. Had he taken parabasis into account, it would have destroyed his entire premise. Because of parabasis, is an action and not a thought. Therefore, like Mr. Wyland, Mr. Stephen E. Jones is not the great Bible student he pretends to be. Let me say that the apostles originally believed the doctrines of the Sadducees, but they were not considered corrupt by Christ. Rather, they were reformed in the Gospel of Christ and taught the truth. If Eve merely believed the devil, why didn't Yahweh simply preach her and Adam back into conformance? All he had to do was preach the gospel to them and straighten them out, right? They were never punished in a manner consistent with a thought crime. They were punished in a manner that was commensurate with their actual crime. And their actual crime constituted a punishable act where thought crimes in a law are non-existent. Thoughts are not punished in a law. Plain and simple. If anyone has a mind corrupted by the devil, it must be Stephen Jones and Ted Wyland. Now Clifton continues in reference to yet another clown. In Mr. Jeffrey A. Weekly's book, The Satanic Seed Line, Its Doctrine and History, he says the following on page 8. When all these definitions are taken together as synonyms, the conclusion one comes to, if he is seeking to be honest, is that Eve was deceived in the mind, not sexually seduced. So the first point of the Satanic Seed Line doctrine does not agree with the scriptures. Eve was not sexually seduced, but rather she was mentally deceived. And isn't that a pile of bullshit? To this, Clifton responds and says, I would ask Mr. Jeffrey A. Weekly what he is going to do with the word parabasis in the Greek, which means transgression in 1 Timothy 2.14. It would seem that Weekly is no better a Bible student than Wyland or Jones. For parabasis is an act, not a mental condition. Now who's not being honest? And Clifton is right. And weakly isolated that word, thoroughly beguiled or deceived, the word ex apateo, weakly isolated the word and offered alternate meanings. 
but doing so he took it out of context you could read down all of the alternate meanings of, of a, any Greek word but very often not all of those meanings fit every context where the word is used putting it back into the context of the loss of chaste virginity in 2 Corinthians 11.2 we can see exactly what Paul was referring to and there being a transgression as the word parabasis in 2 Timothy 2.14 indicates the transgression must have cost Eve her virginity now Clifton addresses yet another clown Mr. Jack Moore in his Seat of Satan literal or figurative says this on page 10 in 2 Corinthians 11.3 the same scripture writer indicates that Eve was beguiled in her mind not in her sexual parts to this Clifton says we must allow somewhat for Mr. Jack Moore's difficulty in accurately appraising a subject and his inability to keep things straight. We must further overlook his tendency of contradicting himself from moment to moment when he is speaking or page to page when he is writing. But Moore, like Wyland Jones and Weekly, completely overlooks parabasis or transgression in 1 Timothy 2.14. I have now given you four examples of how, whether by ineptness or on purpose, the anti-seedliners key in on one passage and completely ignore the rest of Scripture. Now Clifton makes a parenthetical remark aimed at these four men, and he says, Shades of Bozo the Clown. The reason I'm out for blood is because this kind of teaching is helping the Jews in their effort to destroy our white Israel race. The next time you go past a playground, you'll see what I mean. Looking at all the half-nigger kids playing with all the white children. Admittedly, the flesh is a problem, but to misdirect our people from realizing the major enemy is a criminal offense and that is what they continue to do. I would be derelict in my duty as a watchman should I not take these foolish arguments to task. And he makes a note here. The sexual beguiling or deception is in the mind. It is the transgression which takes place physically. The sexual parts are not capable of thought, but merely engage in the action that the mind conceives pretty straightforward. Now Clifton continues under another subtitle. More evidence that Eve was sexually seduced. The next scripture we are going to use to show that Eve was seduced physically rather than only mentally is Proverbs chapter 30 verse 20. Such is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says I have done no wickedness. Now a woman who literally eats wouldn't be called adulterous. She might be gluttonous, but she's not really adulterous.
The mouth spoken of in this verse is not the mouth on the face that consumes food, but the vagina. Also, the word eateth in this verse is the same as used in Genesis 3.6, where it says, She took of the fruit thereof and did eat. If you've read this passage of Proverbs in the past, and assumed it was speaking of the mouth on the face, you were desperately confused, for your assumption was badly flawed. Not only do we know what this adulterous woman did, but also what she ate. It was an apple, of course, Clifton being sarcastic. As we have pointed out, the same analogy of eating fruit was used rather explicitly to describe the act of sexual intercourse in the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is an ancient Sumerian work. This epic poem was extant during the lives of Abraham through Moses and beyond. Its title character, Gilgamesh, is mentioned in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and Abraham is first found in scripture in the land of Sumer, in Ur of the Chaldees. So the ancient Hebrews must have been familiar with both the literature and the idioms which the literature employs, and those same idioms appear in their own literature, such as in Clifton's examples here from Proverbs. Now he continues in a rather graphic manner, and he says, In ancient times, the testes of a man was analogous to an apple hanging from a branch of a tree. Anyone who has taken a knife and cut an apple in half knows that there are seeds in the core. So it is with the testes of a man. The ancients had other ways of comparing things of a sexual nature. The mandrake, for instance, was considered the devil's apple. There were the apples of Sodom, also known as grapes in Deuteronomy 32. This analogy is unknown to me, but Clifton explains it a little later. To show you this, I will quote from the Zondervan Pictorial Encyclopedia Volume 4, page 66. Mandrake, mentioned five times in Genesis chapter 30, and once in the Song of Solomon, chapter 7. Mandrake is generally accepted to be the love apple. The mandrake was obviously rare, and was supposed to have aphrodisiac properties. The old-fashioned name of the tomato, the Solanum esculentum, that's its biological name, was love apple. It is thought that the mandrake is Atropa mandragora, that's another biological name, which is like the deadly nightshade, and therefore a member of the same family, the nightshade being a similar plant. This plant bears yellow fruits, somewhat smaller than the tomato, and has an acquired pleasant taste. Because of its sex reputation, it is called by Arabs a devil's apple. The description in Genesis of Rachel's conversation with Leah 
certainly gives the impression that the mandrake was thought to be a love potion. Its near relation, the Atropa belladonna, is of course the source of atropine, an important medicinal drug. The Royal Horticultural Society's Dictionary names the plant Mandragora officinarum, Mandragora being the word from which we derive mandrake in English, and describes the fruit as a globose berry. It gives the alternate name as devil's apple. This is substantial evidence that ancient cultures understood the temptation of Eve in the Garden of Eden to be of a sexual nature rather than mental only, as the anti-seedliners declare. This also shows that the sexual seduction of Eve had nothing to do with a Babylonian religion, as Stephen E. Jones claims in his book. After all, the Arabs have been around a long time. It should be noted that some of the Arabs descended from Joktan, brother of Peleg, and son of Eber, Genesis 10.25. Many others descended from Ishmael. The word Arab simply means mixed. So the Arabs, or any mixed group, are far from being our cousins. The fact that the anti-seedliners do not comprehend the significance of Proverbs chapter 30, verse 20, where the woman, the adulterous woman, wipes her mouth, eats and wipes her mouth, and denies doing any sin, verifies they do not understand the first principles of biblical interpretation. And of course, Clifton is referring to the eating of fruit as an analogy for sexual intercourse, and is insisting that the Arabs understood the connection because of the names they used for certain fruits. Of that, I must admit, I am not quite certain. But he continues by explaining his allusion to the apples of Sodom, about which we had wondered. To give you further input on what the apples of Sodom are about, I will quote from the 1980 edition of the Collier's Encyclopedia, volume 2, page 358. Apples of Sodom. A phrase used figuratively, to describe anything disappointing. Various ancient writers told of beautiful fruits which, when plucked, proved to be full of ashes. Apples growing by the Dead Sea, sometimes called Dead Sea fruit, are described by the French traveler Jean Feveneau, and also by Josephus, Strabo, and Tacitus. I probably read about these and just don't remember them. They may have referred to gall nuts produced by the sting of the insect Cynipes insane. Cynipes insane. C-Y-N-I-P-E-S-I-N-S-A-N-E. That's the biological name of the supposed insect. The small tomato-like yellow fruits of the spiny shrub Solanum sedomian another biological name, are often called Apples of Sodom. It is interesting to note that sometimes these are referred to as gallnuts, as the testes of a man, 
are sometimes referred to as nuts. And 50 years ago, this is Clifton now, I'm sorry, the citation from Collier's ended with the explanation that the small tomato-like yellow fruits of the spiny shrub are often called apples of Sodom. So Clifton responds and says, It is interesting to note that sometimes these are referred to as gallnuts, as the testes of a man are also sometimes called nuts. And 50 years ago, this term was considered to be in very bad taste. And, if used in a disgraceful manner, one might expect to receive a slap across the mouth by one's father or mother. Once we understand this kind of allegory, we can better comprehend Deuteronomy 32, verse 32, mentioning our enemy, for their vine is of the vine of Sodom, and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes, or testes, are the grapes of Gaul. Their clusters, or seed, are bitter. And of course, the children of Israel wouldn't have been hurt by eating somebody else's edible fruit. The fruit certainly is analogous of the reproductive organs and why they were told to stay separate from these people. Further, (coughs) I'm sorry, further it gives us some insight on Acts chapter 8 verse 23. Speaking of a quote-unquote Jew with the gall of bitterness and John chapter 1 verse 47 where Christ had said an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile speaking of Nathaniel Clifton says Nathaniel had none of Cain's satanic blood as some of the other Judeans of that time gall is in the genetics and not in the mind as the anti-sealiners would have us to believe It's just natural for Satan's children to be scheming and crafty as it is their biological disposition. What do you think gall or guile in these cases meant? In the Interpreter's Dictionary of the Bible, volume R through Z, on page 786 it says, it says the following under the heading Vine. Listed under under the phrase Vine of Sodom at the top of the page. And the Jews are symbolized by the wicked tenants of a vineyard who beat those sent by the owner, God, to collect some of the fruit. Finally, they killed even the owner's son, Christ, in order to gain control of the vineyard. Naturally, the tenants were put to death and the vineyard was rented to others. Citing the three synoptic gospels where that particular parable is recorded. Of greater significance, however, is Jesus' description of himself as the true vine and his father as the vine dresser, citing John 15. Jesus is probably comparing himself as opposed to the vine of the Jews, which has become degenerate. And Clifton responds to this, and he says, We can understand this last statement about the Jews being degenerate. 
for many had race mixed with the Canaanite nations. When we read Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 21, this is the message we get. This is a factor that the anti-seedliners continue to deny. Time after time after time after time, Ted R. Wyland, in his book Eve, Did She or Didn't She, identifies the Canaanite variety of Jews as being of true Judah. That alone completely disqualifies him as any kind of authority concerning scripture. Caution should be advised with all of his tapes and books, for one listens to them and reads them at his own peril. Citing Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 21. Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, meaning Judah, holy a right seed. How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange, and Clifton has the word hybrid in brackets, of a strange vine unto me. What is there about this verse that the Antichrist, anti-seedliners don't understand? And no amount of soap can wash that hybridization away. (coughs) Saying this, Clifton cites the very next verse, Jeremiah 2.22, which continuing says, For though thou wash thee with nitre, and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith Yahweh God. Race mixing is the unforgivable sin, because the result of race mixing cannot be accepted, and therefore it is the sin which cannot be cleansed. You can't wash off your bastardized skin. So Esau could not repent. Even where he sought repentance, as Paul said in Hebrews chapter 12, ostensibly because he had no legitimate offspring, he did not get repentance. So Paul wrote Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright for you know that how afterward when he would have inherited the blessing he was rejected for he found no place of repentance though he sought it carefully with tears. In other words there was no coming back for Esau. Selling his birthright did not make him a fornicator, but the Canaanite women he married certainly did make him a fornicator. So now Clifton continues under the subtitle, Cain's status and occupation never changed. In the Old Testament, Cain was a vagabond, and in the New Testament, he remained the same. In Acts chapter 19, we read, Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them, which had evil spirits, the name of Sovereign Yahshua, the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Yahshua, whom Paul preaches. And there were seven sons of one Sceva, a Jew, and chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Yahshua I know, and Paul I know, But who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped upon them, and overcame them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. 
and this was known among all the Judeans and Greeks, also dwelling at Ephesus. And fear fell on them all, and the name of the sovereign Yahshua was magnified. And many that believed came, and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them before all. And they counted the price of them, and found it fifty thousand pieces of silver. And evidently, even at this early time, the Jews were busy spreading their proto-Kabbalistic mysticism and bilking people with overpriced books. Clifton continues, On another occasion, Paul rebuked a Canaanite Jew thusly, referring to Acts chapter 13, verses 9 and 10. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, set his eyes on him and said, Oh, full of all subtlety, or guile, and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of Yahweh? Clifton says, The interesting thing about Acts 13.10 is the fact that the center cross-reference takes us to both Matthew 13.38 and 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, which read as follows. Matthew 13.38 The field is the world. The good seed, that of the woman, are the children of the kingdom. But the tares, the seed of the serpent, are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil, the serpent of Genesis 3.15. Clifton's parenthet- They are Clifton's parenthetical remarks. And 1 John 3.8 He that commits sin is of the devil, the serpent of Genesis 3.15. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God, Yahshua, was manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. And Clifton makes one more parenthetical remark. Satan and his son Cain, along with all of their progeny. And as we have concluded more recently, and I am certain that Clifton would now agree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil had many more branches on it besides Cain himself. And all of these non-Damic races have their origins somewhere in its branches. Now Clifton concludes, Scripture instructs us at Romans chapter 16, verse 17, as follows, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. Further, we are admonished to scrutinize those who use good words and fair speeches to deceive the hearts of the simple. And it certainly does. Our work would be a lot easier if so many of our identity brethren would refrain from entertaining clowns. Ted Wyland, James Brueggemann, Dave Barley, Jack Moore, Stephen Jones. None of these clowns are proper identity Christians. Not one. They are not identity Christians until they learn and accept two seed line. As Christ himself had said, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 13, 
as therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, his messengers, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who has ears to hear, let him hear. If we cannot properly distinguish the wheat from the tares, how can we walk with Christ and avoid the fate of the devil? Christian identity has to be able to identify both groups, not just one. Tomorrow night, Christian identity liturgy in the book of Odes. Tomorrow night, I will endeavor to prove that the liturgy found in the book of Odes in the Codex Alexandrinus establishes that the original Catholic religion was indeed Christian identity. You'll have to listen to hear the proof. Praise Yahweh the God of Israel. Thank you for listening. And good night.